This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, a lot of people following shares of Twitter today. Uh, stock is up about 15%, just off its highs of the session at 39.55 a share. Stock rallying the most in about six months. The company topping first quarter sales projections and reported strong user growth bolstered by changes to its social media service that are drawing a wider audience of consumers and advertisers. That's your headlines. That's the share price. Jatendra Worrell is going to help us make sense along with Selena Wang. Jatendra is a senior internet consumer products analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Selena is our global technology reporter at Bloomberg News, both joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco, a dynamic duo. Selena, kick it off. What was remarkable about Twitter's latest quarterly update? So what was remarkable was that they managed to beat revenue estimates and grow its monetizable daily active user rate by a pretty wide margin from what analysts were expecting. So there was already growing optimism around this company after several quarters of healthy gains. And this is just another sign that they are on a path to sustainable revenue growth and faster profit expansion. And Jack Dorsey said on the conference call after earnings that this was probably the best financial performance Twitter's ever had. So it looks like it's finally benefiting from its efforts and investments to make the product easier to use, to clean up the platform, get rid of spam and abusive content and they're finally quickening their pace of innovation as well. So, uh, Jitendra, they've changed how they are basically tracking their metrics from uh, monthly users to daily users. When did that happen and what sparked that change? Yeah, so basically last quarter they did that uh, and now they are uh, stopping disclosure of the monthly users altogether because, you know, uh, we saw some stabilization uh, this quarter, you know, on a sequential basis, it was up, but uh, on a YY basis, it was still down. So Twitter as a whole, uh, on a monthly user basis, is not growing. But what changed this quarter really is uh, this new disclosure that they have, a daily active user. They surpassed expectations in terms of how fast it's growing. Uh, and with the revenue side, they're also showing how they're converting this higher engagement into revenues. So basically, if you look at some other metrics like uh, ad engagements, you know, how the price per ad engagements are moving. They're showing progress in terms of ROI. So their price per ad engagement, uh, it fell, but it fell less. Uh, it, it's The price declines are slowing, which is a good sign, which basically means, you know, they're seeing higher uh, ROI for advertisers. And, and they're also, they also said they are seeing more click-through rates. So all the changes that they're doing to these platforms, they're squeezing more out of the current users. They're trying to get more people who are, you know, somewhere around the Twitter ecosystem to get into it a lot more and drive revenues through that. They have headroom uh, on an average uh, revenue per user basis for this year. Uh, So, you know, that will give them time to figure out the bigger question, which is like, how do we get new users to come to this platform longer term and grow it? So on that last point of yours, new users, um, who are their competition? What does the future look like? What stands in the way of this continued success? 
Yeah, so if, they, if they're able to sort of continue this um, role that they had this quarter or the next couple of quarters and show that, you know, the engagement's going out, but also there are additional users coming in through all the sports deals that they're doing, you know, all the other content that they're pushing, the uh, abuse that they're cleaning up, and the, the general health of the platform, that is showing uh, some evidence that the daily active user is getting affected uh, in a positive way. But new users, we are still uh, to see like how, how it drives. So I think like those initiatives is where the new user growth uh, would come to be, but but that's more of a 2020 story, end of 2019 story. Right. This year, I think the focus is going to be on user engagement. Selena, what are you hearing about some of those uh, new product introductions, right? You, you know, on our, our blog, our live blog, were, you know, tweeting as Twitter was reporting and holding its call. You know, you talked about how they've been, you know, has had a history of being slow to make changes to its service, but they've got a bunch of new product introductions. What are you hearing about them and what that might be? hold in terms of potential for the company going forward. Right. So Twitter historically has been very slow to stray away from its core product and wanting to stick to all the features that make the heavy users like it. And that's in big contrast to Facebook, which has no problem scrapping entire product ideas, completely changing it from original inception. So we have seen Twitter actually roll out a beta app, which has been open to the public for the first time. That's been out for several weeks. And part of the purpose of that is to improve the conversational experience on Twitter. As you and I know, it's pretty hard to have a conversational thread on Twitter. It's hard to Mm. join a conversation. It's hard to follow one. It's a total mess. So Jack has, Dorsey has said before that he wants to make Twitter more chat-like. So that's one area. Another area is making it easier for users to follow their interests on Twitter. Right now, if you're just onboarding onto the service, it can be pretty overwhelming. It's difficult to know what hashtags, what handles to follow. So they want to make that process easier. And the other big product innovation, which is their number one priority, is reducing the amount of spam, fake accounts, abusive content on the service. And the big metric that they've announced recently is that now 38% of the content that they take action on has been surfaced by Twitter's algorithms rather than solely relying on users to report that before the burden was on the victim to report these abusive cases and now Twitter is actually being somewhat proactive about it, though there's still a long way to go. Hey, uh, Jitrender, just got about 20 seconds left here. Do you see a sustainable path for Twitter based on this uh, last report? For for next couple of quarters, the momentum is behind them. They're on a stronger footing. But beyond that, uh, they still have to bring in the new users and hopefully these changes uh, help them get there. Hey, and uh, Selena, got 20 seconds for you too. What question wasn't answered? I still don't, don't think we know why they're discontinuing monthly active user numbers while maintaining this new number, monetizable daily active users. Why not keep both? <laughs> monthly active users are looking poor, so they're getting rid of it, and now they're introducing this new metric that's looking good. <laughs> why not keep both? More right. disclosure is better. I said to Vince before, I'm like, I could see them going back to monthly saying, oh, yeah, this evens out the volatility. Like, you can go back and forth. Um, guys, thank you so much. Great, great analysis. Selena Wang, global technology reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Jatendra Worrell, our senior your internet and consumer products analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, both of them in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Quick check on Twitter shares continuing to rally up almost 16%. This is Bloomberg Radio. There is 
definitely increasingly something in the air, and it's not just planes and birds and all that good stuff. This story among our most read on the Bloomberg Today, um, Vince, an offshoot of Alphabet's Google has become the first drone operator to receive government approval as an airline, uh, a really big step here. So, <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just like looking at one of the lines in the story because this is where I could see it actually working is burrito by drone coming to a campus <laughs> near you. Watch out below. <laughs> George Ferguson is senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our go-to guy when we want to know anything about uh, the aerospace and airline industry. He's on the phone from our BI headquarters in Princeton. Um, George, this headline crossed the Bloomberg. My guess is you were anticipating potentially that something was going to come along, but I'm curious what, what you think about this. Yes, I think uh, it's exciting days. Uh, Do you mean that, or is that sarcasm? <laughs> no, I, I think it's exciting days. I think okay. there's a lot of opportunity uh, you know, to improve delivery systems with drones like this. I still think there are a lot of limitations. I mean, when I look at the videos they're showing, uh, you know, packages are pretty small, drones are pretty light. Um, I think we're in that kind of world for a while. I, I will note that... Uh, on you know in the battlefields now that they're using drones that are you know, the size of a small helicopter and delivering a lot bigger logistics with it uh, without a pilot. So the technology is clearly there, but I think a lot of risks for the homeland, if you will. So um, yeah, it's, I think interesting days, and uh, but it gets more challenging as you go forward from here. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people uh, think back to what happened over in the UK. Um, with drones by the airports and not a lot of folks want these things flying around, you know, municipally or urban areas. With with this business model, though, delivering uh, to more rural areas, we're clearly not looking at this, at this as, a, as a significant profit model. I mean, it, it, it's got to be a loss leader at, at best, right? Yeah, I think so. Obviously, they're not giving us uh, much detail yet, but I mean, these big tech companies, you know, Google, Amazon, I don't know, you know, there's a, a host of them here in the in the U.S. Uh, they're not afraid to go forward uh, with a loss leader to perfect the technology, which I, which I think is great. And clearly the right place to perfect it would be uh, out in the countryside. But the U.S. is a pretty sparsely populated country, could probably benefit a lot as well in the countryside once it finally gets, uh, you know, all the, all the kinks get ironed out and, and, and we learn how to use it pretty well. So what's the difference, right? We, so we've got Wing, which is the Google, our alphabet company, or subsidiary. You've got Amazon's Prime Air. Are they going to be doing similar things? I uh, Everything I've heard out of Amazon is they are looking at, at uh, similar types of technology of drone delivery. I mean, Amazon Air also does operate big freight aircraft that they fly from hub to hub as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think Amazon, I think anybody who is, um, anybody who is, delivering packages uh, to houses is wondering how to get drone technology involved. I mean, it takes out a person, right? Saves a lot of money that way, probably speeds up service. Um, and I think those are all benefits that, you know, those, those tech companies like to go after. Until, of course, it takes out a person. Like, I do think about, <laughs> no pun in, you know, but I mean, right, the safety issues of this. Like, have we really, do these companies, have we gotten this down 
I, I'm sure we haven't got all the details down okay. yet. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of uh, questions that spring to mind, right? How, how do you do this in a you know a multi-story building in New York City? Well, clearly you can't. I don't right. know if you could drop things on the roof or something like that. But again, I think that's exactly why they started in in the rural areas. And I note from some of the reporting that they've got a lot of consent and have done a lot of hand-holding of the community to, to you know get them comfortable with what they're doing. It's early days. It really is very yeah. early days, but need to see it starting to come to fruition. So when you, when you say like sort of replacing a person, what what's the actual technology involved? Is there there is a human being behind the controls of this flying this around? Uh, from what I've read, yes, uh, it had to be in line of sight. It actually, I take that back. It had to be in line of sight in some of the deliveries. It sounded to me like some other deliveries that they even allowed it to be out of line of sight. Um, in the beginning, I think you do probably need a person, but you do save on not having that person you know, go all the way to those homes into the rural countryside, drive a truck. Uh, but you know what? In time, you could probably turn this into uh, a computer computer flying this. And, and I'll go back to my military example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of those Ford supplies for I think the Marines are using it with helicopters. Uh, I don't think they necessarily need to have a pilot um, at a joystick or something like that, a pilot on the ground at a joystick. Well, but it's just fascinating to see. I think, you know, go back a few years and we would have all said, nah, it's not going to happen. But, you know, here we are certainly talking about it and regulators okaying at least the next step. Um, George, thank you. Really appreciate it. George Ferguson, he is Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Shares of uh, Alphabet, they are up about 1.5% as we speak. A lot of things to still be worked out, Vince, but, you know, this is certainly another big step when you get regulators to say, okay, you can start the trials. Yeah, but in, in, again, as we said, you know, talking about urban areas, the, there are a few I could see these things flying in and coming out with graffiti and all other things yeah. on them as well. The urban areas are certainly a it's lot trickier. Blood's thicker than the mud. It's a family affair. So family offices, definitely coming of age. They're increasingly about direct investments, transparency, uh, lots of different things, working with various asset classes. Northern Trust, by the way, works with many of the wealthiest Americans, more than $1.1 trillion in assets under management. Average client size, about $900 million. So here to talk about what those family offices are up to, Lincoln Ellis. He's senior investment strategist at Northern Trust Global Family and Private Investment Group, uh, based in, I always forget, Chicago? Chicago it is. you are. The mothership is, but just spent a lot of time on airplanes, um, meeting up with people, <laughs> yes, like coming in overnight from Los Angeles. So good to have you back with us. Um, you know, family offices. This is family money, right? Several generations, sometimes first generation. What they want to do with their money? Yeah, super. So they're long duration investors. So in many ways, they take their cues from other institutional players like endowments and foundations. They have long time horizons, and so long time meaning ten, twenty years. Meaning twenty, thirty, sometimes time. fifty years. Sort of multi generational in nature. And therefore, the kinds of risks that they can take are very different. We call them sort of highly asset-sufficient families, meaning that the, the amount of assets they have in excess of the kinds of liabilities for the lifestyles that they lead leaves them with a whole host of different kind of risk-taking that they can undergo. And so it's the difference ends up being the risks that you're willing to take versus the risks that you have to take. Family offices are in the willing-to-take risk business, and so they have very kind of idiosyncratic and eccentric uh, investment portfolios as as a matter of course. I I find that fascinating. When you talk about the risks you're willing to take for the broad spectrum of investors you have, do you find them um, 
being risk adverse, or do you find them being kind of more let's take a chance on things? Well, it's less. It yeah, well, it's less let's take a chance, but let's be thoughtful about the kinds of risks we're taking. So, for instance, this quarter we've written a piece about the differences amongst various kind of risk asset classes, equities in particular. It's a multi-quarter uh, series of pieces that we're going to write. And that's just trying to understand if you're going to have public market beta, what kind of beta do you want to have relative to the kind of return you're looking to achieve inside that portfolio? So I would say that families are very systematic and thoughtful about the kind of returns that they're going to generate. And in this paper, we look at some of the quantitative developments over the course of the last 30 years, particularly in factors building on the FAMA French work. And then broadening it out to some of the uh, additions that Northern Trust has brought into that kind of portfolio management. Whose work? Northern Trust. No, 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 no. What was the other one you said? Fama French. So remind everybody what that is. Sorry, yes. So uh, We're not all as smart as you, Lincoln. Jean Fama, of course, uh, Nobel laureate, University of Chicago uh, in the 60s under unearthing the size uh, basically the noting that small caps are outperform uh, large caps they have historically, and then Ken French uh, building in value as a second sort of piece to a three-legged stool. They, they of course, most familiar, uh, most famous for developing uh, dimensional fund advisors, which is a large factor-related uh, uh, complement. At Northern, we have added some additional factors, and the way in which we combine factors has been of interest to our families because instead of taking market cap-weighted exposure in their broad-based public market beta portfolios, yeah. they can reorganize that from a structural perspective and maybe have a lower volatility portfolio that is more all-weather in terms of the kind so of exposure. So pick to kind of get where they want to be and it allows them risk th- and potential. Yeah, and it allows them to take more time out from a thematic perspective to go after some of the other more interesting adjacencies in their portfolios like private equity or direct investing, some of the things that you led the segment with. So do, do options come into this conversation at all, either to hedge existing portfolios or to maybe be a little bit more aggressive on certain things? They can, particularly in an environment like here where we feel like valuations may be fully valued. Uh, certainly you could use options as an overlay in a broader index portfolio and whether that's driven on the under the hood from a factor-related perspective or just a broad-based index perspective, you could absolutely use that. And it's a fairly low-cost way of both bringing additional yield into the portfolio and potentially hedging some of that downside risk. As you said, you're like looking at different asset classes, kind of breaking it down. And the point here, too, is like not every stock is the same, not every equity is the same. And I'm just thinking to our listeners, maybe they don't have enough money to have, you know, be a family office, but what are some of the principles that, they, that you are working with that you think they should be thinking about as well? So I think, first of all, the, what we talked about at the beginning, sort of thinking differently about the traditional market cap-weighted indexes, particularly we've noted some of the structural issues. Uh, as tech continues to grow and uh, growth has outperformed value by over a thousand basis again points and again, again and again and that size factor as well has outperformed and so when you think about the sort of traditional exposures that you have in the portfolio there may be ways through readjusting that exposure that investors can have a different kind of return stream that's not simply market cap weighted. And so looking at ways in which you combine these different factors, not just taking single factor bets, because we think that that's not appropriate either, but combining these factors in very new and useful ways suggests, and the data is pretty persuasive here, that you can uh, actually have a much smoother return Mm -hmm. uh, with a similar kind of outcome. 
I just want to mention a headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal, SoftBank. Uh, as we know, they've had uh, big tech funds to make investments. They're said to consider acquiring a 5% stake in Wirecard. That's uh, an international supplier of electronic payment and risk management solutions. So a little bit of a headline there. And Wirecard, let me just take a look if there's an ADR. And yes, there is. And Wirecard shares, they're up about 14.5% as we speak. So we're definitely, obviously, no surprise to see some reaction to that. <laughs> That's the momentum factor. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, you know what's interesting, too? Here we have a market where finally you have all of these unicorn startups uh, you know, finally coming to uh, public markets, some of them being well-received, some Lyft having some troubles. How much, in terms of family offices, do they want to be participating in that? Or is that too short-term thinking? Or are they more interested in the earlier stages before they become public? Yeah, exactly. They've already been participating yeah. in this for basically the last 10 years. You, the flood of This is their money, exit. The flood of money into private equity, you know, is something that your co-host, Jason Kelly, yeah. has written extensively about. And that we continue to see families shifting their balance sheets more and more toward the private market and direct company investing for two reasons. One, it tends to be more tax efficient. And two, the structure will allow them to hold companies uh, longer, which we've seen obviously in this part of the tech uh, private equity rally, uh, and and not have to be forced sellers that that, uh, private equity funds themselves have had to be in the past. So that's a very different dynamic that family offices as a new seat at the capital table have driven into the private market. Fascinating, yeah. So I'm just looking at some of your work, and this I find really fascinating is about you have how your performance uh, fits in depending on what uh, area of the economy we're in, contraction, recession, et cetera. Where do you think we are right now? And you have 25 seconds. <laughs> no pressure there, Ellis. No, we're, look, we're in a moderate growth environment. We're going to continue to print sort of 2, sub 2% GDP in the U.S. and on a global Central banks global are not going to let things come undone. We've seen this. I had an interesting conversation with an investor this morning about this sort of Minsky moment again. And this kind of stability breeds a set of questions that, you know. We don't know how it's going to Give play investors out. pause. <laughs> um, well done. You had a few seconds to spare. I'm always on your side. <laughs> Lincoln Ellis, Senior Investment Strategist at Northern Trust Global Family and Private Investment Group, over a trillion in assets under management, based in Chicago, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. Be well. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now, of course, news yesterday, Supreme Court announcing that it would decide whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964 guarantees protections from workplace discrimination to gay and transgender people. Now, Bloomberg Businessweek has reported on the personal and public stories of trans workers. Let's get into this with Josh Idelson, labor reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio right here in New York, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Um, you know, jo- Joel, I want to start with you because I really thought, I really loved when the magazine covered this and really opened up kind of the window when it comes to trans uh, workers. Um, Tell us a little bit about when you guys covered it in the magazine. So so we had a quality issue um, about a month ago now. Mm -hmm. And while we were sort of putting that together, Josh raised his hand and said, hey, I think there's actually a a moment that's in the not too distant future with the, when the Supreme Court might hear a case about being brought by a woman by by a trans person named Amy Stevens, and we sort of like were like tell us more and tell us more and tell us more, and it turned into not only a story about Amy and sort of 
her story or the story that she had that had gone through but the bigger story of sort of the trans uh predicament right and the 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 workplace uh conundrum that they face when they're not actually given rights that other people have and that was a, a really powerful idea to express an inequality issue and why uh we ultimately let Josh go forth on it and and really it was a story that he did before uh, the, the Supreme Court yeah. actually made his decision to hear the, the case. Josh, tell us about Amy. So Amy Stevens lived for much of her life without having come out as a trans woman, although she says she felt from a very young age like there was something different about her, and it was through support from her wife, from her therapist, through a period of difficult soul-searching that she came to the point of writing a letter to her coworkers, including her boss, that set it all forth and said that she planned to come back to work as her true self in appropriate that, business. And how did that go over? She says her boss said he would get back to her and a couple weeks later terminated her. And in a deposition, her boss said that it was because Stevens was not going to represent as a man at work anymore. I, yeah, this whole thing just um, – it, it, this is a really difficult subject. I mean, walk us through the, the logistics of this. It, it, everyone was sort of covered – everyone was covered under the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and then this came about because the current administration pushed back against that? So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has never explicitly talked about sexual orientation or gender identity. But the Civil Rights Act – says you can't discriminate against people on the basis of sex. And our understanding as a society and in courts of what it means to discriminate on the basis of sex has expanded over time. So that includes an important case, Price Waterhouse, that established that that includes discrimination based on sex stereotypes. So it's not just a prohibition on firing someone for being a man or a woman, but also covers discrimination for your way of being a man or your way of being a woman. There's another case on Kali where the court established that it's illegal to commit forms of sex discrimination that might not have been what Congress was thinking about. In that case, the the court said, even if it's a man sexually harassing another man, that's still sex discrimination regarding what Congress was thinking in the 1960s. And so there's been this line of cases, and then over the past decade, a more rapid shift in how these LGBT questions have been looked at under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission under President Obama moved for the first time to say inherently discriminating against someone on the basis of their sexual orientation or the basis of their gender identity is a form of illegal sex discrimination. And some courts have agreed. Mm -hmm. Some have not. So what's the precedent that Amy's case will likely uh, uh, take up? This case, which will be heard along with cases about sexual orientation, squarely looks at the question of does sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act include discrimination for being trans or being lesbian or gay or bisexual. And it is possible in taking up that case that the conservative majority on the court could even look back at some of those earlier precedents. There's concern 
from some advocates and law professors that the court could say, well, maybe our understanding of sex stereotype discrimination was too broad and we should ratchet that back as well. But you do wonder, I hosted a panel here at Bloomberg with the co-creators of Billions, and we talked about Asia Kate Dillon, who plays Taylor Mason. She's um, a non-binary uh, individual, and she uses pronouns like they, there, and them. So, like, we I'm have... St- I'm still working on that. <laughs> I've not mastered it yet. No, I know. And and it's difficult. And they talked about some of the, <laughs> the difficulty, but it it just reminds us that, you know, people identify themselves differently, but... You know, we need to really kind of recognize and embrace it all. So, Josh, when do we expect this to go down? Uh, In the next session, which begins in the fall. One to watch. Good stuff. Jill Weber, thank you, as always. Editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Josh Idelson, great reporting as well. Labor reporter at Bloomberg News out there in our 960 studio in San Francisco. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. I'm Carol Master along with Vince Signorella, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Time for the drive to the close with Sean Cruz, manager of trader strategy at TD Ameritrade. He's on the phone from New Jersey. Good afternoon, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, tell us, you said something about the rally faltering, maybe? Where are we in this cycle? Well, I think right now we really want to get through the rest of earnings season and, and see how this earnings season plays out. I think the expectation was for negative growth this year, but if you look at what we're seeing right now, we've actually had we're about I'd say one and a one and a three quarters percent um, growth so far in the earnings front. Gotten some pretty good surprises out of um, the industrial sector and the financials. So we just need a little bit more follow through on this for the rest of earnings, and we may be able to escape that that negative. Uh, earnings growth uh, story that we were, we were hearing quite a bit coming into this season. I think that can set the, the pace for what we're going to see from equities for the remainder of the year. I think what we're hearing from some of these companies, particularly from the, the staples, point to possibly a, a little bit of a stronger uh, economic backdrop for the year as well. So the point is, and I think this is where Vince actually was going, because we were kicking around some stuff before we got going, that even though we've had such a strong rally and year-over-year earnings per share for the companies um, are falling, you don't think stock valuations are stretched? And this plays to something Dave Wilson was just talking about, looking at where we are in terms of forward PE versus what we're seeing in terms of earnings. I think right now valuations are not only showing that there, there are some pretty strong um, growth expectations out there. I think they're also pricing in a little bit of certainty out of some of the, the geopolitical issues you've seen, be that out of Brexit, a lot of the, the trade issues that are going on and are being negotiated right now. I think the markets are pricing in a positive growth uh, outlook, and they're also pricing in some pretty positive resolutions to a lot of these these issues that have, have been at overhangs and certainly hit markets in the end of 2018. So you're okay then with the valuations? That's, that's your justification? 
Right now, I, I'm okay with evaluations, but I think there's a little bit of, I think, risk to the downside here, and that we're not really seeing much fear or uncertainty around any of this price. And if we're looking at some of the lower levels of the VIX and just the general strength of the rally so far, I, I think there's a little bit of a risk to the downside if, say, we do get some headline risk where the trade talks with China start to fall apart or we get a worse Brexit than what we were expecting. I think you could see a pretty big snapback uh, pullback in the in the equities market as a result. So I'm curious who your take on this. We were talking about this earlier about how multinationals like Coke, P&G, solid results, even with the strength of the dollar, are, are they just getting better at managing it or they, is there pricing power they have involved in here? And, and a lot of people are suggesting the dollar is going to turn towards the end of the year. But that was also last year's call, which didn't work out so well. Will they continue to do well if the dollar stays strong? We think if you're looking at the staples, that's actually been something that I've had a lot of interest in so far this earnings season is they've spent some time refocusing their brands, um, I, I think optimizing their brand portfolios, and they have found ways to address some of the, the, the lack of pricing power that they had, and they're finding ways to pass through a lot of these expense increases, be it from transportation or commodity price increases. They're finding ways to, instead of taking those on their margins, pass those through to the consumers, and that's something that we heard from Kimberly Clark. It's something we heard from Procter Gamble today as well. And I, I'm starting to, to have an interest in if that's actually maybe the first shoe to drop in, in some uh, inflationary pressures, because we've actually seen some, some pretty uh, some modest, if, if underwhelming levels of inflation so far. And I wonder if this could be a leading indicator that we may get a little bit of a pickup in inflation going into the spring. Well, you, you mentioned also the uh, jump in retail sales having to do with um uh, higher gasoline prices. So if you put that together with what you were just saying, we are seeing some increases in, in wage data. We could see that inflation kick that every central banker seems to be desperately wanting to see. But you don't see it running away to the point where it's going to injure the market or bring back the Fed um, and take us sort of out of this Goldilocks scenario. I don't think it'll it'll completely take that off the table, but I do think uh, some uh, some investors and some traders out there who may have overextended themselves with the dovish Fed story, um, you might see that sentiment moderate just a little bit. But I don't think it'll put us back in the camp of, well, is the Fed potentially going to hike at the end of the year? I think you're going to need to see some pretty significant inflationary pressures. And I think you're going to need to see uh, some, some firming in economic growth as well. And we'll get a better look at that this week when we get GDP out. But do you at all worry a little bit about that as the Fed continues to be at a pretty easy monetary stance that, especially if we don't see any more rate increases later on this year, what kind of troubles uh, that might create as a result in the markets as, as people are chasing assets and bidding up assets? I think that's a risk, and I think that was something that drove quite a bit of volatility, and you saw the Fed realize that that was something that was really rattling markets across the board. And so there is a risk, and that's just another one of those risks out there where right now equities are really priced in almost perfection in an accommodative Fed some uh, positive developments on the geopolitical issues, and then also solid earnings coming through. So I do think those are the risks, and it's always hard to tell exactly which one is going to be the one that can spur some selling in, in some of these risk assets. But those are the, the risks that you need to keep in mind and, and keep an eye on, and maybe make sure your portfolio is not getting out of balance, or if you do want to go out there and maybe trim some risk uh, in, in certain spots your portfolio, I think now is a, a pretty, pretty uh, optimal time to do that. 
So in, um, in a few asset classes, I mean, quite a few asset classes, we've seen some tight ranges, some consolidation, big drop in volatility. Um, any concerns about the, the where vol is? I mean, a lot of people are getting caught in this sort of conversation thinking there's absolutely no way vol goes up, and that's usually when it comes back to haunt you. Um, any strategies you're looking at or anything you're worried about in the volatility space? So what we're talking to TD Ameritrade clients about right now is we're telling them to maybe use these low vol environment to go out there and potentially hedge your portfolios. And there's a variety of different option strategies you can use to do that. But when you're looking at the VIX this low, what we're telling our clients at TD Ameritrade is this is an opportunity basically to go out there and hedge and not really have to pay up much for those hedges. So if we do start to get a little bit more turbulence out of the markets, and it could be from a variety of different um, issues that we've just talked about, you can go out there and protect your portfolio. Or if you have a concentrated position, you could potentially go out there and protect that concentrated position and not have to pay up for those hedges too much. That's what the, the VIC this low, that, that's an opportunity it presents for investors. All right, going to leave it on that note. Sean Cruz, he's manager of Trader Strategy over at TD Ameritrade on the phone from New Jersey. You know, Vince, I was just looking at the VIX. Uh, it's down another 2% uh, today. No surprise because of the, the rally we saw in equities. It's down 66 percent from that spike we saw on Christmas Eve. Yeah, and I think this is a, a sort of a perfect segue to some of the traders I was talking to last night were noting caution that next week is Golden Week and liquidity is going to drop, especially at the open in, uh, mm-hmm. in Asia and watch point. maybe for a pickup of volatility in those markets. All right, certainly something to keep in mind. Uh, and then we've got a Fed meeting, right? What? <laughs> or maybe it's two weeks. All right, this is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.